Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Hounsom. It's October, so I am officially allowed to talk about Christmas now. Sure, we've got Halloween first, and that's a celebration that we should be all enthusiastic about. But take a look at what books are being pushed by bookstores, Amazon, and even supermarkets, and you'll find that Christmas and winter stories are starting to creep in. You could say this is crass commercialisation, that Christmas gets earlier every year, or that it's just the big businesses encouraging people to buy their Christmas presents as soon as possible. And while there's some truth to this, there's also an older truth at work too. Namely, that when the nights start getting longer, humanity turns to stories of dark nights, of ghosts, of mystery and magic. Why is this? What are the elements of a good midwinter tale? And would those elements work if you applied them to a story set at midsummer? To answer all these questions and others, we have with us today Lily Haywood, author of A Midwinter's Tale, spelt as T-A-I-L, to reflect the feline element of her story. Lily, thank you for joining us. Please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Oh, thanks, Charlotte. Um, Well, hello, everyone. I'm Lily Haywood. I'm the author of A Midwinter's Tale, T-A-I-L, and The Cat of Yule Cottage. Um, as Laura Madeline, I'm also a best-selling historical fiction novelist. Quite a few strings to your bow and to your names then. Excellent. Oh, well, um, I've read the book and I absolutely love it. And I can see it's going to be one of my yearly reads that I read every year. It was really, really good. But I mean, I love these kind of things anyway. So when the dark nights draw in and everyone starts to think of gathering around the fire and telling stories to while away the long winter nights... Why does darkness and nighttime lend itself to storytelling so much better than, say, a gloriously sunny evening? It's a really interesting question, one I was sort of thinking about. And then, you know, my first thought went to, is it because at nighttime we're not so distracted? You know, the distractions of the day have passed by um, and we can we can focus our imaginations more. Is it because there's something about being safe uh, and inside that's quite archetypal to humans? Um, The idea of being sheltered within while um, danger waits outside in the darkness. But actually, I think it might be even more deep than that. And I was wondering whether we tell stories, especially at night, as a means to fight off death and fight off the fear of death. And um, of course, as soon as I thought about that, I thought about Scheherazade, which is that's literally what she does in the Arabian Nights. She tells stories every night to try and save her life and to try and save the life of other women as well. That's really interesting what you're saying about darkness and death. And I think there is something really deep in the human psyche that does kind of equate those two things. And even as an adult, I still don't like getting out of bed in the middle of the night when it's dark. Whereas if it's like a summer's night, I'm I'm not too bothered. Um, And I know that we were talking about, obviously... The changing of the seasons is is crucial because obviously, particularly in your book, you talk about the turn of the year and the end of one year and the beginning of another. So that made me think, well, that's obviously something and you sort of have death and everything, I suppose. Is that why, do you think, we don't have as many ghost stories and folklore stories set in the summer? Is it this idea that winter as well as dark nights is all connected with the idea of death, with it being cold and the land all barren? 
Yeah, I think you see it in folklore quite a lot, you know, in with the classic folk tales of things about the the wild hunt and the the oak king and the holly king, you know, fighting um, for dominion over the seasons. Um, and I think because after harvest is this time of life and and kind of um, light and everything kind of being fruitful, you then get into these these dark days and kind of long nights. And I think we're traditionally sort of closer to spirits and ghosts and maybe closer to ancestors as well. And so I wonder if that's part of um, the sort of natural leaning towards it. I mean, in, in this country, in the in the UK now, we're, we're quite distanced from death. Um, but it wasn't always the case and, and in different cultures that it's much closer um, relationships. So, you know, like Los Dias de los Muertos in, um, in a lot of countries um, where people kind of gather on uh, either Halloween or All Hallows' Eve or however, whatever you'd like to call it, to, to speak with their ancestors and to tell stories and to remember. And so I think maybe that's one of the seasonal elements to it. Do you think you could tell a good ghost story in midsummer in the same way that you could in midwinter? Because I know there's obviously in your book, there's a lot of kind of reflection and going back and you talk about talking to your ancestors. Do you think it's possible to to write sort of a midwinter ghost story, but set it in midsummer? I'm not sure if it is, but I'm willing to be convinced otherwise. Yeah, I think that it absolutely is. Um, and I think it's just about finding the strangeness of the season and maybe the sort of the the kind of fantastical and otherworldly elements. And I mean, one of my favourite novels of all time is The Owl Service um, by Alan Garner. Woo! Yeah, woo, it's so good. I think it's so creepy in places. And he manages to conjure the the sort of, I think it does have very slight horror elements to it, um, but he conjures them out of this kind of horrific nature of summer as well when, you know, everything is is blooming so much that it's almost overwhelming and, you know, people are seeing things in sun shadows and and the heat is really intense. So I think you can use all those seasonal elements. Um, but yeah, it's just about finding the weirdness in them. Yeah, I'm going to throw um, the Lammas Field into the, the ring as a, it's by Catherine Fisher um, as an example of a folk horror done well that's set during Harvest um, so the complete opposite of, you know, dark, cold nights drawing in. It's, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of quite kind of horrible elements to that. And maybe it's, um, it's because you're tapping into that animalistic pagan tradition, which is unrestrained and wild and can't be tamed by a more modern setting. Because it is set, the, it's a very short book, and I do recommend it. It is set now. Um, lots of modern gadgets and stuff. And yet none of that matters when it comes down to the the main character, the danger of fairyland, basically, of this sort of pagan urge that overtakes um, any sort of modern barrier that we can raise against it. So yeah, I, I think it's when you're talking about seasonal stuff, I think you can achieve that sense of horror in, in any time of the year. I totally agree. And you've just reminded me of um, Sarah Moss's Ghost Wall, which is a brilliant book, but again, set in at the height of midsummer. And it's really interesting because it is exactly about people trying to recreate and then giving in to, um, I don't know what, what how, how they put the sort of pagan pagan vibes. And it's um, a character whose father is very into kind of reconstruction. And, and these characters sort of allow themselves to be overtaken by the 
the spirits that they're sort of trying to reconjure. I've read Ghost Rule. It's an excellent book. I really enjoyed it. And the ending was like both abrupt and satisfying, I felt. It was uh, it was good. It's been a while since I uh, read it. I must reread. But I was wondering, you see, when I say um, I don't think you can set a midwinter tale at midsummer, I see what you're saying about finding the horror and the strange and things. But I think the darkness itself and the weather itself is an element within a midwinter tale that you can't replicate in midsummer. Yeah, you could have midsummer storms and stuff like that. But even thinking about your book, Lily, it's uses the weather and the darkening nights as something that is almost as important as the characters within the book. And I think that really just is something you can't get in summer. And it's different in summer. And I'm not saying you can't have a, a good horror story in summer. You can. And there's some excellent examples there. I just feel like the atmosphere and particularly Christmas because, um, again, sorry, Lily, having just read Lily's book, it's all up in my head. Um, oh, no, the that's idea great. Of, I mean, fine by me. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that you've got uh, Christmas darkness, but you've also got the Christmas lights. You make a big thing about, obviously, some of the lights being put up. And that's some of the stuff I read when I was a kid, when I, I loved Christmas. And for me, Christmas was like all the twinkly lights. And then I loved the different colored lights that we have on Christmas trees and stuff like that, and how the tinsel sparkles, and it really lights up a dark room. And then when I started reading Christmas horror, I was like, oh, wow, now it makes it even more sinister. It's great. And it's just, again, just not something you get in summer. Well, the lights are interesting because I think the lights are part of, and again, it's kind of this deep human urge to to fight back against the darkness and to establish a kind of sense of community. And uh, I think humans do that through stories. What about this idea of um, modernity and uh, modern conveniences and the fact that, you know, you, you mentioned that people turn to each other for comfort in the long, cold, dark, and especially when the food is becoming scarce. But today, um, we have 24-7 supermarkets, we have central heating. Um, from a, a Western perspective, um, a lot of us have been very privileged and have been brought up in privileged spaces um, where we aren't struggling to, to grow food or, or you know burning through our summer stores. So, why are we still drawn to, you know, stories that encourage uh, this sense of community through darkness, this sense of coming together to weather the cold time? Well, I think it's exactly like you said. I mean, we we are in this country, uh, we live in a very privileged position of those, those things aren't a daily concern for us, which is certainly not the case for almost the vast majority of people in the world. But Having said that, the lives we live, it's still very precarious. And I mean, you only have to have a power cut or lose your internet or the water gets shut off. And suddenly you realize how very dependent we are on a quite complex network of systems and how close those things still can be, especially now we're living through an age of austerity and sort of government enforced poverty. And th th I think those things are nearer for people than we like to believe, or certainly we like to confront on a daily basis. So maybe that's why it still rings true. When I was writing these questions, it was one of the things that came up to me. And it's a case of if I'd been writing this maybe five, six, seven years ago, I wouldn't even bat an eyelid at that idea of, you know, oh, in our modern world where we don't have to worry about things. But even as I was writing it, I was thinking about people on food banks. I was thinking about the pensioners who can't afford heating and they're going to be sitting there wrapped up in blankets and, and really cold. And even pensioners, just families who can't afford to feed and heat. And I kind of wonder what place 
ghost stories and things have in, in that level of society. Because we who run this and who write books and who read books are privileged enough to have money to buy books. What do you do when you literally don't have enough money to put food on the table and money in the heating? What kind of stories are you reading then? That would be, you know, a sort of a more modern, in, interesting aspect I would I would be interested to know. Because I know that when I, the pandemic came along, I could not for the life of me read any dystopian fiction because it was too close to home and it wasn't interesting. So I don't know whether stories like this, where people struggle against the elements and win, brings comfort or whether it just makes a terrible situation worse. History would suggest, given how strong our history of fairy tales is, not fairy tales, fireside tales and folk tales, that actually they do bring a measure of comfort. But personally, that's not something I could imagine. I'd kind of want to steer away from them. Well, I think it's maybe both, isn't it? It's there's I think there's comfort in the sense of stories having a conclusion, um, an idea of people fighting back against something and either winning or not, but learning a lesson in the process. And I also think maybe going going back in time to sort of the idea of these communal hearthside tales, it's a sense of shared history, um, perhaps as well is important. But yeah, I mean, I think the I, I thought was thinking about the idea of a bedtime story, and you know, doing a bit of research into that and why why we tell children stories at bedtime, and obviously it's kind of a very soothing thing. But it, it has its origins in a kind of it has a, a Victorian origin because to have a child who's going to sleep in one room, it presupposes that you have a separate room for that child to sleep in, which is going to be warm enough, and it presupposes you have access to picture books. Um, and a high level of literacy um, to read to read to children. And in the times before, when you could only afford to heat one room, people would have been sat together. They would have often slept in the same bed and shared stories orally. So I think there's an interesting push and pull between um, written fireside tales and spoken or orally told fireside tales, um, especially in relation to winter, because if it's cold, everyone's going to be sort of together in the one place that's warm. I'm currently rereading a load of the British Library, weird tales set at Christmas, and I've got I've got masses of Christmas tale books. And one of the things you said there, Lily, made me think, I wonder if a crucial element of a midwinter tale, in general, obviously huge generalisation, is a happy ending or is perhaps redemption if nothing else or justice there's a sense like you said of fighting back against the cold against privations and things like that and winning out in some way even if it's a small way whereas perhaps you'd be more willing to kill everybody in a summer one where you know it's all happy and bright and sunshiny and we're all dead and kind of thinking midsummer and the wicker man and things like that but when it comes to a winter day like christmas carol of course is such a favorite because it does deal with privation and you know the how the rich are against the poor, but it has a happy ending. It has redemption. It has the little boy being saved before he can die. So maybe redemption, justice, they're all a key part of the midwinter tale as well. Because at this time, when death is so near, you don't want to be thinking about unpleasant things. And thinking about happy endings makes me think about ghosts, because ghosts have elements of redemption. They have a certain amount of comfort to them as much as they can be chilling. Um, they have a certain amount of guidance. I mean, do you think that's uh, another element of Midwinter Tales that kind of essential, this idea of ghosts and what we can learn from them and what we can take from them? Well, it's interesting um, writing about a, a book with a cat in it as well, because actually one of arguably one of the first horror novels in English um, is a book called William Baldwin's Beware the Cat. Oh, yes. Um, and it's, you know, it's, 
it's fascinating because it's a story about uh, it starts off with four men who are sharing a bed i think in an inn and um they wake up between sleeps because you know everyone used to break their sleep cycle into first sleep then you'd wake up and you'd potter around write some letters whatever second sleep um so anyway they wake up between sleeps and you know two of them are chatting and the other two wake up and are like well if you're going to be talking you might as well tell us a story um so they start sharing stories all about cats and their ghost stories about cats and the first one's about um grimalkin um and whether grimalkin is a, a witch or not uh, and the second story is about um a man who brews a potion that lets him speak to listen and understand animals and he overhears it's quite horrific he overhears a load of cats who are sitting underneath a gibbet eating all of the the bodies of the traitors who are hanging there and they're holding a, a cat tribunal um to try this cat called Mouse Slayer. And it's, it is a sort of ghostly story in a way, but it's also this whole book is a satire um, and it's a sort of anti-Catholic book. So it's trying to teach a very different kind of lesson um, with, with its themes. But I, d- I did think there's a, something really interesting about its setup and the way it sort of describes Tudor London and the fact that these stories it's a story within a story a written one but also an example of an oral tradition as well um and so i think often ghosts are used to to illustrate points if it's you know a moral point or like you say people seeking justice and and you see it in, in ghost stories from all over the world you know you've got um Ugetsu monogatari as well uh, in in japan which is a sort of again a series of interconnected tales i think it um Oh, what does it translate? Oh, yes, it's Tales of Moonlight and Rain is is how that translates. So, again, kind of ghostly tales set in a cold season um, that are all either somewhat satirical or trying to teach lessons or trying to illustrate social points. I just love the idea of, well, if you're going to be awake, well, at least tell us a story. <laughs> if you're going to be talking and keeping me up, you're going to tell me a story. I like that. I, yeah, I, I love it because that's exactly how the how it's written as well. These two guys who are just like, oh, I'm trying to sleep, but fine. <laughs> All right, tell us, let's hear something good. Something else that we tend to see in midwinter stories is this idea about the countryside itself being an integral part of the setting, uh, of the narrative. In your book, it takes place on a Cornish island, um, and yet the protagonist is describes herself as a committed Londoner. The whole idea of that raises conflict between um, rural spaces and suburban life uh, that most people, uh, probably the majority of us are used to, or at least were brought up in. So, you know, what is it about the countryside that makes it such a ripe setting for folklore and winter stories in particular? Well, I think especially in Cornwall, um, where the book is set, you do have a quite a strong connection to um, the history of the land. I mean, it's it's embedded into place names, you know, like Red Ruth is Red River, and Baldu is Black Mine and... Um, so you've got these linguistic markers about the history of, of the land. Um, and not to say you don't have that in cities. I mean, of course you do, especially in cities with incredibly long histories like London. But as a setting for a story, I mean, I, I'd never really experienced, because I grew up in the suburbs and I was staying in Cornwall in a, a cottage which was on its own in a in a valley and had stood there for a thousand years. And 
Um, that was actually inspired my first novel, The Cat of Yule Cottage. But I stepped outside when it was dark and I couldn't see a thing. I couldn't see six feet in front of me. And I never experienced darkness like that, sort of thick countryside darkness. Um, and of course, it just makes your imagination go wild because anything could be out there. And suddenly all of these stories of um, standing stones and spirits and and ghosts and otherworldly sort of apparitions, they suddenly seem more true somehow. And whether it's that they're they can't can't quite exist in the same way under streetlights, or they have a different uh, form. I'm not sure, but that's that's certainly what I experienced. And what do you think a Yuletide story would look like if it was set in a city centre? I mean, would it have to be a different kind of story? I mean, I suppose we were just talking about Christmas Carol, and man, that's pretty urban. Yeah, exactly. That that's urban. I, I think there's ways of doing it certainly, and there are probably you know a lot of good examples of it as well. Um, it's a, a countryside setting isn't a prerequisite, but it, it in a Midwinter's Tale there's a narrative reason for it as well um, for the character having lived in London and feeling connected to London while also re-establishing this connection she'd almost forgotten about. Um, with a different landscape, one that's really steeped in stories. So it's it's reflected narratively as well as um, in the geographic setting. Going back to the idea that the setting can be as much of an influence on the characters as the other characters around them, I did wonder if the difference between a city setting and a countryside setting is what the spiritual side of it is. So we were talking about A Christmas Carol, and in that he gets guided by the spirit of Christmas, which is a very sort of human thing, and there are there are ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future, and so on. But in your book, Lily, it's very much the spirit of the land itself. So I'm wondering if maybe the choice of between setting it in a city or setting it in a countryside is what kind of spirit you, you want to evoke are, are you getting your characters to learn from the land or getting your characters to learn from the people who inhabit it well i mean i think they're fundamentally connected i mean the things about cities they're sort of palimpsests they're stories on top of stories on top of stories um and often if it's a story of the land it's a story of the people who have inhabited it for better or worse um and i think you know that you see that reflected in an environment, you know, whether it's um, what people have built or or what they've done. And, you know, I'm just I'm thinking of the the sycamore gap tree, which that happened quite recently. It was it was tragically felled. And, you know, again, that's that's an example of a human action on a landscape um, for worse in, in this this case. But, you know, hopefully if, if the tree survives and it grows back, there's a story there about our responsibility as well um, to the land that we that we inhabit. And I know connection to the land is something that Lucy, you've uh, touched on in a lot of your books, mostly in Sister Song recently. Uh, indeed, um, it's a very important theme in my both my historical fantasies, actually, uh, Sister Song and uh, the upcoming Song of the Huntress, which is due uh, next March. Um, yeah, I think it's. Um, I think it's a really important theme. I think it's massively relevant, you know, especially as you mentioned, um, Sycamore Gap Tree. But, you know, wider afield, um, we've got other issues with polluted rivers. We've got climate change, uh, species under threat. Like These problems are not going to go away. And I do think to a large extent it's because 
um, you know, and, and maybe this is something also to do with the, the person who cut down the sycamore tree, is that there's something vitally wrong with our education system in the fact that we don't teach, uh, we don't teach respect for the land. We don't teach this sort of understanding of uh, the importance of where we come from and and the importance of looking after our natural environments. Because, you know, you did say this, that we are creatures of our environment and we're creatures of this world. And it's, it's just terribly sad to think of us poisoning it for the worst, you know, and for and, and stopping any future generations from seeing the beauty that we've that we can see all around us at the moment. So yeah, I mean the 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 spirit of the land and in fact reconnecting with it and rediscovering it and and discovering that it holds a, a, a spiritual power um, and an emotional depth. I think it's, a, it's such a you know, I'm glad you're exploring it too because there, there's so many there's so much to say there and it, I think it's so vitally relevant today. Absolutely. And I think it's often um, this sort of question of city countryside. It's not as simple as this, of course, but I think there's sometimes a profound disconnection to the seasons as well, which lends into a wider disconnection um, with with environment. As a horror aficionado, I am so thrilled that there's been a recent resurgence of interest in a ghost story at Christmas in the sort of M.R. James style, uh, thanks to the work of Mark Gattis and others. And of course, A Christmas Carol remains perennially popular at this time of year. But when I thought about it, A Christmas Carol has precious few women in it, and James's stories are renowned for their lack of women. Um, and even that other pinnacle of Christmas reading, Susan Cooper's The Dark is Rising, um, has a young boy as the main protagonist who meets more males than females, as I recall from his travels. So is there no place for women in the midwinter tale? I wondered if darkness and death were the domain of men, while women kind of take over when it comes to harvest and rebirth. And yet, even as I wrote this, I realised that your main protagonist, Lily, is a woman. So what were you thinking about when you decided you'd go for a main character's woman? And did you find that you were kind of going against established principles of what other people were already writing? It's really interesting because I've only just realised that, um, I mean, I, I think I was doing this subconsciously anyway, but I've I've kind of flipped the the traditional gender roles in the sense that the, the hearthside storyteller is traditionally, I, I think it's often the role of a woman. To, to tell these stories, um, especially when you have this kind of dichotomy between the written story and the oral, orally told story um, in a time when literacy in women was frowned upon or not as encouraged, then women would pass down their stories verbally. Um, whereas in, in my book, I've got Davy, who is, he's the, the sort of oral storyteller and Mina in a way is writing, the one writing the story. Um, but going back to Scheherazade, I think we see this with the Arabian Nights. She, she's an amazing raconteur. She has this vast knowledge of all of these stories. And occasionally in the nights, you know, she'll tell a story and, and the Sultan will say, well, have that one written down for my, for my library. I liked that one, record that one. Um, so, you know, ordering it to be written, whereas she she knows these stories off by heart. And so I wonder if it's going back to your question about, you know, men, male kind of writers of these stories, whether that's a slightly more um, modern, modern in the sense of, you know, 1800s, 1900s phenomenon, um, whereas the the role of the sort of storyteller, especially of more domestically focused or hearthside or family um, or ghost stories actually fell to women a lot of the time. 
See, I'm trying to think of all the stories I've read where tales are told by the fireside. And the only one I've got in my head at the moment is Robin Jarvis, where um, they have the midwinter storytelling festival and there are no female mice in it. And I mean, I know it's mice rather than humans. Um, but yeah, it's all the the old guys. I don't know. I'd have to have a think about that as to whether the the storyteller by the hearth, which, like you say, is traditionally a, a feminine sort of place, is taken up by men when it comes to midwinter. That's an interesting one. I'm going to have to go away and think about that. If you think about the role of the witch, maybe that's kind of where these these two things kind of blend together. Um, a woman who is wise and knowing and also has access to ghosts and familiars and spirits. Um, perhaps these sort of two things get conflated. It makes me think of the story of Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm who wanted a particular woman to tell them stories but she refused to because her stories were for kids I think she was a nurse or something like that and so they sent in a kid pre-primed going go and listen to the story and then report back um, which is what you know makes me think of of that and like you say whether they've been misplaced whether they've been displaced in later literature no I think it's true to say that you know especially kind of the, the ancient bards and that tradition is is quite male and I it's kind of sad to say that, um, but it's funny because uh, I was reading Bard Skull by Martin Shaw and he actually, you know, mentions that explicitly and talks about Merlin's sister running amok and the fact that there are, you know, there's this, he adopts this female voice to say, you know, hang on a second, we're here too. Um, yeah, you might think that the bards are men, um, but we've always been here. We're the women by the fireside. We're the women raising our children. You know, stories are in our milk that we give to our children. Stories are, um, we, are we are the keepers of, it. and I think, I think we mentioned this um, in a previous episode about possibly the difference between, you know, um, folklore and what folklore is, and the fact that folklore specifically feels like it belongs in a female domain, whereas, you know, as opposed to myth and legend and that the sort of the epic ballad form, you know, the, the, the preserving of the great stories uh, is seems to be a sort of kind of masculine, What maybe because a lot of those stories take place in a very masculine world, you know, swords and battles and kings vying for power. Um, and I think that there's an, an interesting kind of conversation to be had there between these, these ideas of whether folklore is specifically a very, you know, a household thing. It's it's a family thing. It's something that passes down from mother to daughter, as opposed to you know in the great uh, in the great mead halls, standing on the table talking about swords. Yeah, it's it's funny, isn't it? Because on the one, you know, the great epic battles are stories of life and death, but the fireside tales and folklore are literally stories of life and life and death. It's you know maybe it's instructions for for how to survive winter or how to preserve food or how to um, you know how to, how to run a community um, encoded within stories and. Uh, yeah, there's there's an interesting. That's a really interesting question, and obviously, gender roles have always been fluid throughout history. Um, but uh, yeah, there's something interesting to explore there. I think that is a brilliant image to end on, and it is very much in keeping with your story about women, about spirits, about storytelling, firesides, and Christmas. And I really enjoyed the book. Thank you so much for talking to us, Lily. Thank you so much. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform.
We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.